Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Mike, does it sound like I'm speaking normally? No, well, it kind of, there's a little bit of like, did you put a bunch of cotton in your mouth or something like that before we started talking? I, it, no, no, don't make me more paranoid. Okay. I had to go to the dentist this afternoon and I got, I got some Novocaine or, and uh, now I have that feeling that half of my mouth doesn't work. Oh, yeah, it's the worst, especially when you try to eat. Right. And I didn't consider that we were recording this until I was driving home and I'm like, huh. I feel really weird. I hope I still speak weird. It, like, I even checked in the mirror a couple times to make sure that you know half of my mouth wasn't like hanging open, drooling, because yeah. it kind of feels like it's that way. But no, I'm looking at your Skype right now, and the thing is, you can't even tell. You can't even tell that half of your face is completely bigger than the other half of your face. <laughs> so that's the only reason no, that I even thought about swell. the cotton. It can't even tell that. Um, obvious, you know. They, <laughs> yeah. No, it's fine. You look great. Oh, okay, great. Thanks. Well, but you know, the looks, what's most important is, the, is that I sound normal. So you, no, I, people understand me. You sound, you sound fine. And the oh viewer, the, the listeners love cotton. So it's great. Okay. All right, cool. Well, now I have a built in excuse if I start stumbling in my words. All right. So how was your weekend? Um, my weekend was really nice. Got to see my dad for Father's Day. Oh, that's Spend good. Some time with the family. Um, yeah, and it was a beautiful day for hanging out and barbecuing and having a fire pit and whatnot. So that that I enjoyed a lot. How was your weekend? Um, good. I mean, it's all right. I did a lot of running and I did a lot of drinking. Mm, so okay. I just went to visit a bunch of uh, breweries in downtown Minneapolis. And oh, okay. Which ones did you? I'm sorry, I have to know which ones did you go to? Well, the big one was Fulton. Okay. I mean, so I'm always a fan of Sisyphus Brewing, but that's kind of that's Sisyphus Brewing is right by my apartment so that's like nice. that's a gimme is that like sisyphus brewing it's like oh we're just up there um but the the trek all the way down to fulton which is in like this the warehouse district which is where they do with the technology and um the startups uh are kind of in that area and fulton has a really nice okay. brewery in there and so cool. that was fun so visiting there was cool and i enjoyed a wide variety of their beers nice mm-hmm well, that sounds like a nice weekend. Yeah, it was all right. And I did a lot of running, too, because I'm thinking about uh, going to the Quad Cities Marathon in September. The Quad Cities? Yeah. Are the Quad Cities DJs going to be there? You bet the Quad. At the, the finish line, the, like like pumping it up for you? Yeah. The, no, the Quad Cities DJs, um, they're the, they, run, they run it themselves. Oh, it's their marathon. Yeah. That's great. And uh, today when I was running, I listened to a bunch of Misfits songs. Because it's Glenn Danzig's 60th birthday. Happy birthday, Glenn Danzig. Happy birthday to Glenn. He's 60, 60. years old. He's a pensioner. Wow. Yeah, that, I, that was crazy when I realized that Glenn uh, Danzig was 60 years old. I interviewed him 10 years ago. For That's Max awesome. And when I, how, how was he? Was he nice? Well, here's what happened. Like, you pick up the phone and flames actually come out of the phone. <laughs> and you're like, hello? And then all of a sudden... Like, My ear burned off. Yeah. It's like Glenn, when Glenn Danzig's voice is the sound of, of hellfire. 
coming out of his thing. No, he was very nice. He just sounded like a guy from New Jersey. He really just sounded like a, like this a very unassuming guy from New Jersey. All right. Um, well, that's kind of disappointing. Well, I, I like the fire thing. Yeah, that was more exciting because originally I picked the phone with very like trepidation, obviously. It's, <laughs> right. like, it's like, what's going to show up in the caller ID? 666-6666. Right, right, right. And I'm like, no, my gosh, that thing. Um, Funny. Right, and then just the, the devil horn, the little sign with the, um, the slash and the M and the other slash comes up, and that's what comes up for his caller ID. That would be cool. I could totally so, imagine that happening. Anyway, so I did that. I, ran, I, I listened to Misfits to celebrate Glenn's birthday, and then I was thinking about the Quad Cities Marathon, and I, I know this is going to sound unusual, but I'm thinking about a costume for it. Oh, is it one of those costumey races, like Halloween one? Or? No, absolutely not. What's the date of it again? It's the end of September. So the last Sunday Oh, of okay, okay. But the reason that I couldn't stop thinking about a costume for it was I kept on thinking of me crossing the finish line dressed in that leotard that Freddie Mercury used to wear on stage. You know, the, the one that was like half black and half white and had a super low cut, oh, yeah, almost down yeah, to his no, belly button. It's a sweet costume. Yeah, and I have to, I'd have to spray my chest hair black to make it really appropriate. <laughs> and obviously, you know, like, um, it'd have to be super tight so you could see everything. And right, right, naturally. I'd cut my hair and I'd shave my beard to a mustache. And with the cape, and I'm thinking of myself crossing the finish line, and I imagine somebody putting a little crown on my head and giving me a scepter and playing We Are the Champions. Oh my and that's really, like, that got me through, like, the last two miles of my run today. That visual... Thinking oh, of. please, please, please make that happen. Well, Mike. maybe I will. I will hand you the crown and scepter, and I will bring a speaker with that song if you do that. <laughs> well, I couldn't stop thinking. I, I was like, I was going through the logistics in my head. Like, is it? How's that cape going? Is it going to slow you down? <laughs> you know, it, it it shouldn't be a fast. You know, if I'm worried about time, like I probably don't want to wear the cape. And also, <laughs> like, how is the support? You know, and and support yeah. is very important when you're running, especially for 26 miles. And do I want our bits going to come flying around? You know, what's right, going on? Right. How how strong is that spandex? Right. So that's these are things that I think about when I run, and also how much would that leotard cost? If it's under 100 bucks, yeah, 150. I'd probably want to have a conversation about it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I probably think like right. No, you exactly. You got to. I'm going to have to budget for my Freddie Mercury race costume <laughs> that you'll wear once. <laughs> Right. Well, actually, yeah, it could be every Halloween, but then you got to shave every Halloween anyway. So that's what I think about. Um, and uh, I don't know how to transition that into our guest. It's okay. We're, we're just, you know, um, I don't either. So <laughs> why don't you tell me about our guest? Because you interviewed. I interviewed Dr. Rebecca Housel. Okay. And uh, she uh, moderated a ton of panels at Comic-Cons and Wizards World. So she worked for Wizards World for a couple of years. And she's known as Professor Pop Culture because she's a professor. And she started using uh, examples of uh, pop culture and comic books and everything in her classes to try to, to try to get more people interested in her classes at the college she was teaching at. Oh, that's cool. And, that's she, and, she wrote, yeah, and she's written a series of books. Um, you know, true blood and philosophy, the X-Men and philosophy. We talk a little bit about this, but okay. And we go into, I mean, it's really about the rise of geek culture. And that, that's like the first half of the interview. We discuss how, I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, comic book movies in the eighties were a joke, you know, until Batman, basically. I mean, comic book movies, maybe the Superman stuff in the fifties, but every live action comic book movie was a joke for decades. 
And right. And now they're the most popular things in the world. Yeah, they're huge. I mean, every I haven't seen the second Avengers yet. Um, Me neither. But um, you know, I, I I like most of the Marvel stuff, and like those are the biggest movies of the summer. And like, why is that? And why are all of a sudden things that were geeky thirty years ago, like the ter- even the term geek has been reclaimed, right. you know, and um, a positive thing versus you know, I mean, I guess I used to wear a T-shirt that said dork. So we're working on reclaiming. I remember that T-shirt. We're working on reclaiming all the words slowly but surely. Uh, so that's that's the thing. And so we kind of dis- cu- uh, cover that for a long time. And then we go into uh, the paranormal influences on pop culture in history. So we kind of, it's the rise of geek culture and then how it relates to the paranormal uh, by the ending. So that's what we talk Very about cool. with Dr. Rebecca Housel. All right. Well, let's take a listen, shall we? Mm-hmm. We are with Dr. Rebecca Housel, PhD, who is a author, a speaker, and known as the pop culture professor, in addition to being a real professor. So uh, we'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Housel to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate it. I'm very happy to be here. And I, I think a, a good way to start out would be, how did you get known as the uh, pop culture professor? What inspired that name? Well, it's really interesting. I, I was originally a professor at a technical uh, college in, the, in New York. It's actually a rather famous one. Okay. So I'm not going to give them a shout out because, uh, you know, I don't work for them anymore. <laughs> you have to right. pay me for that. Right, and they have to, now, pay, they have to um, pay for ad time on the show. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, But I started off there as a writing professor, which is what I still do today. Mm -hmm. Um, And the thing was, because it was a a technical university, uh, most of the students were only taking writing classes as as a service class, as something they had to do. It was a requirement. So you had a lot of, like, engineers basically taking writing classes who were like, I don't even care about writing. Why should I even bother? Right. So I started to incorporate things like comics, things that I had interest in already, comics and, you know, of course, superheroes, things like poker, Monty Python. I mean, I just went full on. I just did it. You know, anything that was a cult favorite, anything that I thought, video games, of course, I'm a big gamer. So anything like that, I kind of threw in there and into the course. And boy, did that that course go. That course, they made me teach that course. I kid you not. In 30 weeks, I had 12 classes a wow. year. That's a by the way. It's not like a full load is typically three, three, six classes a year. So I was, because there was such a huge number of students that were like trying to for this class. So um, that's sort of how it started. Um, and then I, of course, because I was teaching, um, teaching using pop culture, I started writing about it, doing research on the pedagogy of using pop culture in the classroom, and then it became more like commercial writing for the pop culture and philosophy book series. And next year, I'm coming out with my own pop culture professor book series. So I'm very excited about that. Okay. But yes. Yes. So it's been it's just been like that. And and from the book, I ended up getting the Comic Con gig, and I went on tour with a company called Wizard World in L.A. for three years. Um, working with different celebrities and talking about um, everything from the history of the supernatural and paranormal in pop culture, which goes back 
at least 12,000 years in written human history okay. um, to the Whedon verse, um, Joss Whedon and things like Buffy All and right. Joel and... And Firefly, of course. Of course. Everybody's, I mean, yeah. everybody's favorite, the brown shirts. Um, <laughs> talk a little bit about the, uh, you know, you've, you've written True Blood and Philosophy, Twilight and Philosophy, and the X-Men and Philosophy. And uh, I, actually, yeah. I actually own the Doctor Who and Philosophy one. Oh, very good. That they, uh, and Excellent. That, that's a pretty good one. Tell me, you know, tell me a little bit about how you integrated, you know, philosophy into the world of, um, you know, Magneto and Professor X and everything. With superheroes in particular, the X-Men, for me, the reason why I got that particular contract was because I've been asking for it since 2003. The book came out in 2009, um, so it took me a while to get Bill to say yes to this. Um, and X-Men was my favorite comic growing up because they had um, the most diversity, and they were actually really the first comic, besides Wonder Woman, who's essentially, um, you know, the the creator's, uh, based on the creator's mistress, Olive, a student of his, who was his dominant, uh, he, he was, he was submissive to her. So, like, that's, it's a great concept and everything, oh, but, like, yeah, you didn't know that. Yeah. No, yeah, I yeah, did yeah, not. Yeah. Yes, the whole uh, when when Wonder Woman um, ties you up with her with her rope, you have to tell her the truth. Yeah. <laughs> oh right. Okay. I guess I see it now. That's yeah. The the lasso of lasso of truth. You know. Okay. That's right. You must do what she says. <laughs> and uh, that he actually came up with the lie detector. He's the creator of the lie detector. The creator of Wonder Woman, but because of their BDSM activities. <laughs> oh man. I know, fantastic. I never, I never, I guess I thought about with the cuffs and stuff like that, you know, she had, um, uh, but I guess Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman does have a, I mean, that's a bondage thing, theme right there with the, the cuffs and the lasso and even the invisible airplane is kind of voyeuristic. Oh, absolutely. You know, the whole thing, it's, it's awesome. Um, and so, you know, she's great and everything, but X-Men was actually the first comic um, that, that had, Jean Grey was actually the first female um, character who had, like, powers who wasn't based on some male sexual thing. And sure. um, and from there, they evolved so many strong female characters, like After Women's Liberation, Storm and Mystique came, happened, and they just so many great characters came out of X-Men, um, like a female werewolf, Wolfsbane, is a is a uh, character from the X Men comics. There's just so many. Celine from the Underworld franchise uh, that Len Wiseman is pretty famous for, and, oh, and yeah. uh, Kate Beckinsale. Yep, she's from the Hellfire Club, which is from which is from X Men. Oh, okay. So like, there's just so yeah, I know, right? There's so many crazy connections. X Men kind of rock the world. Um, and for me, as a growing up as a girl in the '70s, um, you know, I kind of I was. You know, I was alone a lot, and uh, not because I couldn't make friends, but because I didn't have any supervision, really. Sure. And so I'd be, like, five years old, walking five miles to the comic book store with, like, you know, a bunch of chains that I'd pick up on the way, because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was the 70s, and you could actually buy comic book chains right. at that time. Um, and and it just helped, it empowered me. You know, I learned to read with comics, and uh, I just, it empowered me. I felt I could be stronger. I felt like... My weirdness, you know, feeling so, like everybody feels like they're strange, 
um, but that maybe that weirdness is because I had superpowers or, you know, like... Right, that's right. I mean... That was special. Yeah. You know, I never thought about it before, too, but really, I mean, the X-Men has a lot of strong women. I mean, now there's plenty of, you know, there's movies and, and pop culture with strong women, Um but the, I can see that the X-Men being one of the first ones. I mean, even though it's X-Men, you know, it's, they have strong... Well, it, strong, I haven't... Go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. I just meant strong female characters is, you know... is. Oh, is, for sure. Yeah, and, and I was going to say to you, it, it is X-Men, you're right about that, but that wasn't the original title. The original title was meant to be more inclusive. It was called The Mutant, but an editor at Marvel said to Stan, hey, because Stan was on tour with me for three years, also with Wizard World. What an energetic guy. He's got to be 93 now. He celebrated his birthday in his 90th in 2013, I think, in Austin, Texas. Oh, man. At Comic-Con. So, yeah, no, I mean, he's, it's, it's been for a girl growing up, you know, basically in the projects, a little southeast of Boston. I, you know, I, I really can't even say how amazing it's been working in the field, meeting people like Stan Lee. Anyway, an editor convinced Stan that the original title, The Mutant, should be changed to X-Men because X-Men was so much cooler, you know, right. in the 60s. And at the time, you know, the whole idea that the X factor was kind of a big deal because of secret government junk that was going on at the time, you know, Area X and all this stuff. Sure. So it was kind of hot at the moment, and, and it was shorter, Shorter titles always sell better. And so that was sort of what the idea was. But Stan's original thought was, let's make this Stan and, and Jacob Kurtzberg or Jack Kirby, as everybody knows him. They were like, hey, you know, we want to make this inclusive. So it's really interesting. The, the original thought wasn't to make it focus on men. You know, right away, it, it was an inclusive comic. Amazing. I mean, as far as pop culture and mainstream acceptance of, I mean, everything from... You know, the Marvel movies are the, are the biggest movies of every summer, you know, at least for the past few years. Yeah. And, you know, you see, um, when you talk about genre television and everything, like, uh, I mean, they're bringing the X-Files back. And, uh, I mean, you have people, you know, when I was growing up, and I'd tell somebody my favorite TV show was Doctor Who, like, there was like one person who'd heard of it. And, you know, it'd be kind of like, well, that's cool, nerd. And now, now it's like something... <laughs> Like now you see everybody's, you know, not, I mean, but you, you know, you, it's not weird to see a TARDIS t-shirt when you're walking down the street. And, and as compared to, you know, 30 years ago, I would have been like, oh my God, like we're in a secret club. So, I mean, <laughs> what do you think led to that, that this is kind of, I mean, the golden age of, of genre mainstream acceptance? Well, I can tell you exactly what led to it. If okay. If you really want to know. Yeah. Oh, yeah um, I, I want to know. <laughs> it's, it's a little, it's going to sound a little academic. But um, it really goes back to social theory. And um, social theorists uh, started tracking so modernism versus postmodernism. So World War II is the best example of what modernist thinking led to, that idea that of the greater good, that the individual doesn't matter as much as the greater good. And, and so you could see with World War II, it's something like the Holocaust, that there's only one solution for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Hitler totally, uh, you know, made that awful by creating the final solution for everybody, which the world really agreed with. And you know they did because it went on for 10 years until uh, Germany and, and their allies like Japan and Italy started knocking on other people's doors. 
Right. Otherwise, they let mass murder happen for almost 10 years. So um, that's, that's, I mean, 12 million people were killed. It was more than a million people a year he was offing. And the world was like, oh, we don't know what's happening. Why is that happening to us? So that was modern right. thinking. And after World War II, starting around 1950, this idea of postmodernism started to develop. And, and the best expression of that that I can give you, um, where the individual matters more than, more than the greater good, so it became individual-focused. You can see it in movements. So after 1950, we see it in movements like the civil rights movement of the 1960s, the women's liberation movement that happened, you know, shortly thereafter, basically, right. um, both here in the States and in England. But also today, you you know about eye technology, the eye, iPhone, the iPad, the iPod, the eye stands for individual. Um, and, and think about how you were talking about how Dr. Who 30 years ago, nobody knew it was what they were talking about. Imagine 30 years ago, do you think any household would have spent the thousands of dollars a year we do now on updating things like our phones? Nobody had personal phones. Right, now we of course all not. Do. And, and, we, and kids, and everybody has one, and, and there's at least one computer minimum in each household. Mostly, almost every person in the house has a computer. There's multiple TVs. There's, multi, there's also iPads on top of it and iPods. And, and so everybody, personal electronics, the I in personal electronics have become huge. And, and the reason is because of this postmodern cultural shift. And you, we saw it in, in large social movements like the civil rights movement, like women's liberation. But it also filtered into things like pop culture. Um, and part of the postmodern Part of what was going to happen to the postmodern cultural shift in attitude was something called parity. Um, so that was predicted um, in the 70s by social theorists. And, of course, today some films like Dodgeball, you know, I think about Adam oh. Sandler films, Will Ferrell, Talladega Night. Yeah, right. Things that, things, that really, things that really send up. Um, yes, yeah. exactly. So, so it's really, it's become about the individual. So when it became less about larger groups, um, and more about the individual, geek culture was bound to emerge because it's all about the individual, becoming an individual. And, and if people, if, if a large group of people like Doctor Who, now who cares? We can all, as individuals, we can all express ourselves individually through our smartphones, through our iPads. Technology has really helped that along. You know, I was, think, um, I was thinking about it. I was thinking about that the other day, actually, because um, Apple had their developer conference last week, and people get excited about the Apple developer conference, and, and guys like Tim Cook or before him, Steve Jobs, like, they get excited about a new device, like people would get excited about a new Beatles album, or, you know, and so it seems like really has changed that, you know, um, the the... The culture, the people that who ran the culture, like in musicians or actors and things like that, or writers that used to direct us in a certain thing, have almost been superseded by, um, I mean, tech entrepreneurs. I mean, people. I think about Elon Musk when he comes out with something, everybody pays attention. Right, um, and and individuals drive the culture. So the fans, it's now a fan-driven culture. Mm-hmm. Things like Kickstarter, it's allowing fans to say, "Hey, we love Veronica Mars." You know, and that was last year. Veronica Mars came out. It was a it was a cult hit, a TV show, and and fans wanted to see it as a movie. 
you know, and there's, there, you hear stories like that, which are a total, complete success, but they're, they're all fan-driven, you know, so that's the thing that's amazing. Every time I'm at a Comic-Con and I have somebody like, um, you know, for example, Marina Baccarin, I was working with her, uh, I think this was last year, and um, somebody in the audience had said, I'd really like to see you as, like, this particular superhero character. And um, and I said, you know what? Let's get on Twitter right now. <laughs> Let's do it right now. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really that's a really good way of looking at it, that as the culture did shift into focus on the individual, um, I mean, the a lot of these, I mean, the themes that were coming through in, you know, I mean, just think about... Uh, you know, classic themes from Star Trek or classic themes from the comic is about the triumph of, you know, the individual person over um, the faceless, you know, faceless corporation or, you know, how many, you know, man versus machine. It's always, uh, it's always the the triumph of the human spirit is such a um, a basic theme in superhero work and, and genre work, especially that as the mainstream culture as, or as uh, as the monoculture kind of divided up um, in the latter half of the 20th century, kind of the, the geeks took over. I like, the, I like that idea. That's a, that's a good one. I'm looking at some of the dates that, you know, of different you know, panels you worked and things like that. And I see you were in here. I'm, I'm up in Minneapolis. So I see you were in Minneapolis last May. And yeah, I know yeah, there yeah. was a lot of good panels. And then I see you got a great picture with you and uh, John Barrowman. Captain Jack from oh, yeah. Torchwood, who, uh, you know, I, I, I think he's great. And um, so of all these, you know, who do you think has been, you know, a couple of your highlights of people that you've, you've worked with or got to interview and felt like, um, you know, or moments where you're like, you could really feel these, you know, actors and creators um, connect, you know, in a, you know, what's a, what's a thing like where you're like, well, this panel was where they, they connected so well. It's something I'll always remember. I would say one of the best moments for me wasn't even something I did on stage. I was in the green room and it was the first time that I had met Stanley personally. Like, you know, I'd been around him. I was, you know, I'd seen him before, but the CEO of the company, John Macaluso, um, we were in the green room and uh, James Hong was there talking to me because he was one of my clients at Wizard World and, and, and uh, we were taking pictures together in the green room, which sounds weird, but uh, I wasn't. I wasn't the fan. He was the one saying, "Come, come, come, come here. Let's take a picture." I was like, "Okay." When Jake Long tells you to take a picture, you do it, right? You know. <laughs> uh, and so we're standing there taking a picture, and John comes in uh, with with Stan, and uh, John says, "Stan, have you ever met Dr. Rebecca Housel?" And Stan was like, "I have seen Dr. Rebecca Housel. <laughs> I've never met her though." And so he's like, let me introduce you to the pop culture professor. And I was, I really, I don't know what to say. I fangirled. I just like, <laughs> I worked with these people and I just like, I was like, oh, I was like, I can't, I, I like, I said, can I hug you? <laughs> I, was like, I wasn't being professional at all. I just like hugged him. And, and he, and I said, I said, I have to tell you this, Julie. I said, you raised me. I grew up on X-Men comics. I kid you not, he took a step back, looked me up and down. I'm kind of famous for my, my boobs and my sort of sexuality, like I'm like a sex bomb That's what uh, Manny Bennett called me on stage, once uh. it like really sucked. <laughs> Sexual napalm, that's what he said. Sexual so, napalm, like, nice. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Stan Lee is looking me up and down, he goes, 
well, I can see I raised you well. <laughs> it was fantastic. I was, I just like, I burst out laughing. Mm-hmm. I was totally like fangirling. And that was definitely a moment for me. I love meeting everybody. There wasn't a single person I worked with that I didn't enjoy and have a great time with and felt like tremendous tremendously like humbled and and grateful and honored to be on stage with people that I grew up watching you know a Ron Glass was another moment okay that yeah. might sound like a weird one but he's he was a shepherd in Firefly and Serenity right and um, he's also I mean Barney Miller I mean a lot of people would know yes. him from Barney Miller and he's just you know he's he even he was even on a couple of, uh, episodes of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. too I think last season yes yes well that was part of what was weird both Jocelyn and I are like I'm younger than him, but not like, you know, I'm like, I think four or five years younger than him, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and uh, so he had, the moment he saw Ron Glass, he had the same moment I did when Ron walked on stage. I was doing the Serenity panel with Summer Glau and Ron Glass. It was in, I think it was Columbus, Ohio. might have been 2013. And uh, <laughs> I did not, this has never happened before or since. When Ron Glass, Summer came out, everybody clapped, and she sat down, and I was like, yay, isn't she awesome, beautiful, awesome, yay, everybody's clapping, it was great. And then Ron Glass was a little late, he comes out on stage after, and he, and, and he, and I literally, I'm not kidding, he started talking, you know, hey everybody, I began to cry. Because of Barney Miller, I remembered it was like a flashback <laughs> from my childhood, like I didn't watch Barney Miller, but... You know, my parents would have it on at yeah. dinner time, maybe even, and I, I just like I never had that happen before. And I, and I watched Happy Days my, my entire life, and I worked with Henry Winkler, which the was Fonz. awesome. And you know, yes, yeah, no, I mean, it was truly he's inspirational to me, and I, I hope I get to work with him again because he's like awesome. I worked with Elvira, who I grew up watching. You know, like I worked with so many of these people that I would would like see them on TV and then they're in front of me and I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. But really, Ron Lapis started crying and it took me by surprise because I didn't (laughs) even remember that that was on in the background in the 70s when I was growing up as a little girl. But but like I I heard his voice and I was like, I literally started crying on stage. I was like, he's like, are you crying? (laughs) I was like, I am. (laughs) <laughs> and he came over and hugged me, and and then I calmed down, and everybody could get back to uh, get back to the panel. The other moment that happened that That's was awesome. fantastic, yeah, it really was. Uh, was another icon, Michael Madsen, mm-hmm. and this was um, in 2012. I mean, I'm going back a little bit, but it was it was the one and only time he worked at Wizard World, and and uh, he worked with me, which I was really happy about. And I'm saying we're on there, we're doing the panel, and I'm like trying to be cool, you know. I'm like Michael Madsen, you know. I'm freaking out. I'm like Kill Bill, and you know, right? That's a war dog, Mr. Blonde, you know. I'm dying up there, and um, and I'm, but I'm, I'm totally being professional. And all of a sudden, he's like, he turns to me, he goes, "Hey," he goes, "What's that shirt you're wearing?" I was wearing this designer top from, from Roberto Cavalli. I would often get it get something from the designer to wear on stage and I'm wearing this it is like a really beautiful top and, okay. he, and he's like hey it like stops the entire Q&A <laughs> it's like 150 people in the audience and Michael Madsen stopping to talk to me and he's like hey what's that shirt you're wearing <laughs> and I'm like um I said 
I just, I just want everybody to know, Michael Madsen just got this Q&A to ask me about my shirt. Okay, <laughs> let me ask you a question now. Right. You know, I mean, and, and then, as, you know, he basically had a personal conversation with me in the middle of the Q&A because he liked me. And then after the show, um, you know, uh, my manager is there uh, who was, uh, you know, is also somebody that I was with at the time. And Michael Madsen's like, hey, is that your boyfriend? I go, no, it's not my boyfriend. <laughs> He's like, okay, good. He's like, dude, he's like, can you come here and take a picture? <laughs> you know, just like, yeah, no, that's not my, that's not my boyfriend. No, um, that's funny. <laughs> Technically, no. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's my manager. Uh, no, it's fantastic. And, you know, how have you, um, you know, I think you, you brought something up a second ago that, like a lot of these, I mean, these conventions and these panels and all the Wizards Worlds and Comic-Cons and stuff is that, they bring the creators of the, of the things that, you know, we love, you know, if it's, uh, and genre TV is, uh, you know, it's, it's, people love it, and I love it in a way that, you know, I think we have a relationship with genre TV that we do not have with other kinds of, with other kinds of culture. You know, the relationship that we have with, uh, that people have with, like you said, like Joss Whedon's shows, or... Uh, that you know, I have that with Doctor Who's. A lot of my friends have it with Star Trek. People have it with Star Wars. I mean, why do you think the relationship? And like you talked about, you had it with the X Men. Um, why do you think our relationship with with genre stuff is so different than our relationship with you know Friends or um, you know just like some kind of sitcom or, or something like that? Well, this is. You know, and this is an interesting question. I, I like it because actually in TV land, in Hollywood, I guess I should say, um, because of technology, we were talking about how technology and postmodernism kind of work hand in hand and, mm-hmm. and geek culture, how it feeds into geek culture. This is part of it. This is part of that overall answer. Um, what happened with television shows and with writing for television shows is that something like a sitcom, for example, that is meant for people to be very, very light. People do not have to think about it because they're they're working on their smartphones and they're looking at their iPads or they're on their laptops and their smartphones and their iPads and they want the TV on. Right. So it's an ADD culture and things like sitcoms, we can't have a, a real relationship with it. Modern Family has a very big following. Things like Seinfeld, very, very, very big following. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they're, they're not meant for people to think, they're written for people to not have to think about Shows like True Blood actually was noted one of the shows. Um, it ended last year, sadly. Um, it was seventh season, so it ran for seven years. And it was voted one of those shows that you actually had to, you couldn't, you had to watch. You know, you couldn't stop and, and, and do your Twitter. <laughs> you know? Right. You couldn't be, you know, you had to really pay attention. It was a thinking show. And a lot of the geek culture shows that you're talking about, things like Doctor Who, they are shows that require Star Trek. Um, they all require your full attention. Generally, we, we like to be engaged. And there's nothing quite like the start. You mentioned Star Trek. Um, I worked with, you know, people like Patrick Stewart and, and met them. And, um, and, of course, you know, Captain Kirk, the ultimate. Uh, you right. Know, the whole, the, I, was, I was just amazed. That was amazing, too. Um, but but that that's a show that you just don't see anymore in the sense that, uh, it's the thing that gives us hope. You know, it, it shows humanity in a hopeful light. A lot of the shows that you're talking about in geek culture today, 
it's it's hum, humanity is, is is like not doing well. Right. Uh, even things like Doctor Who, you know, there's, there's a lot of dystopian futures and um and and it happened a little bit in Star Trek, but overall the idea of the prime directive of, of humans saying setting out to be explorers in the universe to go and make it make the universe better, a better place and and to be enlightened and to educate, not not to you know, not to witness, not to make people right. change religions or something, not like early explorers on, on Earth, but actually like go out there and like learn just for the purpose of learning is something you just don't see anymore. Doctor Who versus Star Trek, I always felt like that the Doctor Who the um was part of, I mean, post colonial United Kingdom you know, was uh, they had a lot of dystopias in Doctor Who because of the fundamental difference of them feeling, you know, the guilt of the end of the empire versus the optimism of the United States. And like, you know, That's right. and so those really, yeah. you know, and, and you're absolutely right. So Star Trek had that feeling of, uh, you know, optimism. And I was, I was just about to say something like that because, um, well, you know, you know, the most popular genre show on right now, Game of Thrones, is about as non-optimistic as you can get. I fell in love with, especially the female characters. You know, um, Arya, Arya Stark. Oh my oh, gosh, yeah. fantastic! So, so that's actually going to be one of my books for next year coming out. Is the pop culture professor and Game of Thrones and and talking a lot about the history that George R. R. Martin uses, like actual human history. Obviously, no dragons, which is bad. Right, I wish it was. Because <laughs> they would have been so much cooler if they were. <laughs> but things like that, and, you know, you're talking about popular TV shows and pop culture and uh, things like the paranormal, which, you know, uh, Game of Thrones has. Because um, mm-hmm. they, they have they have people that come back to life and basically zombies and a zombie race, and it's kind of interesting. But Walking Dead is another one of those areas that... Um, in terms of the paranormal and, and, you know, which is basically anything that has to do with crossing over from life into death. Right. You know, uh, and that's zombies. You know, it really all started with uh, with a vampire 12,000 years ago who was a god. Um, but these zombies, like, have, have, and that's another dystopian future that we were talking about, that sort of idea of, like, it's really not the zombies. The zombies are people that become these mindless, hungry things. Right. Which represents... The masses, you know, I mean, that's that's us. That's our mindless, hungry hordes uh, of of these mass people. Uh, and and in one, it's it's interesting how nine eleven affected how zombies are portrayed. Um, and and in terms of like things like um, Max Brooks's World War Z, um, which is a classic. Came out anybody that hasn't yeah. any, anybody that hasn't read that yet. If you were listening, once you're finished with this podcast. Go to your library or go to the store or uh, go to Amazon and pick it up because it's it's the best zombie book ever, I think. It's it's fantastic. I love it. I also love, of course, Isaac Marion's Warm Bodies, but because because really it shows a shift, another cultural shift occurred after the 10-year mark from 9-11. 9-11 shook the foundations of the Western world okay. um, because humans humans were no longer humans were now the monsters. The monsters had to become our heroes. That's why zombies were vilified in things like World War Z. It really reflects that cultural attitude about, you know, people are the enemy. And in World War Z, 
you know, it, they're they're really portrayed in a very like like terrorist basically, like a like something you get initiated into, and and it's really to me it always represented sort of a terrorist and a terrorist feel to it because it came on the heels of of nine eleven, and then after the ten year mark, sure. you know, Isaac Marion writes Warm Bodies in two thousand ten. I believe that the film came out in two thousand twelve uh, with Nicholas Holt. And you see, you see, all of a sudden, humanity wants to reclaim its heroism. Well, I think you know it's interesting um, how you're you're going, like you said, the the change in nine eleven, and also the change in zombies. So if you take you know the first Night of the Living Dead, and then all of the you know the Lucio Fulci films, and Dawn of the Dead, and you know you go through that, and then there are no like zombies are never the good guys. There's no, you know, they're never, there's never anything human about them besides the fact that they, you know, they, they don't retain any of the humanity. They're just monsters. And by the time you get to day of the dead, uh, you know, they're trying to teach, uh, the zombie how to talk, how to shoot a gun, you know, and, and, and the cycle kind of repeats again, even with the return of the living dead series, by the time you get to return of the living dead, the, the a zombie is the main character or, you know, a girl that's zombifying. And now, you know, we're going through this where, you know, you have, like you said, warm bodies, eye zombie. It's kind of like the cycle into it. You have these dead as monsters and they, the monsters eventually become the protagonists over, like it, it's, a, it's a cycle that's repeating over time. And I, I can definitely see that, uh, you know, September 11th obviously changed a lot of, uh, you know, pop culture, accelerated the cycle probably. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Superheroes, yeah, for sure. And and you wanted to have, I mean, the idea also of, um, you know, instead of like the our own government, you know, think about stuff from the 1990s. Like it was always the U.S. government was the bad guy. If it's Will Smith and Enemy of the State or the X-Files or, you know, that Hackers movie. Like anytime it was all these, you know, all, all of a sudden um, – the people that work in the government and the CIA and stuff like that are the good guys again, post 9-11. You think about 24 and stuff like that, you know. Exactly. If yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have had good. a CIA agent be a, be a good guy in the late 1990s because we, the CIA was considered, you know, like dark and evil and, and did things that were horrible in foreign countries. And whereas. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's 100% true. And, and this kind of thing, what you're talking about has been happening for literally hundreds of years. I mean, pop culture is, is an advent of of postmodern postmodernism. But things like Arthurian legend and Robin Hood uh, stories, they were used in the same way. Um, Victorian England really re-embraced sort of Arthurian legend um, because of this culture at the moment. Robin Hood stories throughout our history, even American history, mm-hmm. become very popular when this big bad government um, all of a sudden, there's like a slew of Robin Hood movies. <laughs> right. You know, Russell Crowe and, uh, you know, all these people are playing all these different, you know, there's, there's parodies of it. There's Carrie Elway's, and it's just like all of a sudden there's all these Robin Hood films. And uh, and that's really what, and that was just like you were saying, it was the 90s when government was, you know, really not well liked. But let's go a little bit to that you said you talked about and have talked about the influence of... Um, the paranormal or the supernatural on pop culture. And, you, you know, you talked about that 12, you know, 12,000 years of it. So what's the, what's the first example that you think of that you can think of when, you know, something from the paranormal that influenced people 
um, 12,000 years ago. Okay, so written language starts to evolve about 12,000 years ago with Devanagari, the written form of Sanskrit, um, and things like okay. the Vedas and Upanishads. And, um, and so, you know, you, you, Vedanta is, is, is what Hindu is based on, and it's the oldest philosophy known to man. And Hindu is the oldest religion. Um, so Kali was the goddess of life and death, who was the first vampire. Um, she was called to earth by the other gods to defeat a demon, to the other gods when they'd use their swords um, to cut off, you cut off the head of the demon or, or, you know, basically cut the demon every time the demon bled, more would pop up and, and the demons were populating the earth. So they had to call Kali. She used her fangs to suck out the demon's lifeblood, all of them, the population of them, and then used her very lolling tongue. She's often portrayed as having this lolling tongue, which sometimes indicates shame. And it's connected with the story because she actually like lapped up all their bodies so that no drop of blood spilled. But she was in such a blood fury after that that she was dancing in her field of victory and, and didn't even see that she was dancing on her consort husband. So, you know... Kali, no, and that's, Kali's the god that they're worshipping in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? So, so she's really, she's a goddess of life and death. And, and in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, she's portrayed as the goddess of death, really. But just like every religion, there's extremist groups and... Um, you know, it's, she's basically Mother Nature. You know, Mother Nature gives life and takes it sure. away, but we tend to think of it in a very kind of, yay, happy, she's bringing us snow, and look at the flowers, you know. But Kali's not just about ripping out people's hearts. No, 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 no. She gives life okay. and death. She, she's like, she's the, she's the all. She, you know, she's sometimes thought of as Brahman, the whole, the, all, the whole reality. Um, she's the universe. She's everything. Okay. So over the course of like 4,000 years, the story evolved, and we start to see Adam, and, and not Eve, but his first wife, Lilith. Lilith is his first wife. <laughs> My, many people aren't always aware of that. Um, and the, oh, right. When you think about, you know, the divorce rate in the States is like something like 50%. And, and there's no way we, we had a shot at having <laughs> anything better than that because the first man supposedly divorces his first wife and takes a second wife. So, you know, 50% is pretty much where it's been for the last 6,000 years, essentially. Um, so. Right. So anybody who doesn't know what, what Lilith is, is that um, in the original story of Adam and Eve, Adam's first wife was... Um, would uh, you say disrespectful to Adam? She wasn't submissive enough to Adam. Well, she was made from the same clay as Adam. She was his equal, so she wasn't she wasn't disrespectful to him. She just was his equal. And when he said things like, "Hey, baby, can you make me dinner?" she said no, <laughs> and he was really unhappy. Right. Um, and he didn't want an equal. Um, he wanted something made that was from his submissive. Right, and and that's where the Lilith Fair. That's where they got their name from. And also in uh, Vampire the Masquerade, Lilith is, you know, treated as a, um, like a mythical witch. And I think in Bordello of Blood, which is a uh, Tales from the Crypt movie, right. Lilith is, is the main bad guy portrayed by Angie Everhart. Like, it's the original vampire yes. Lilith. Yes, I forgot all about that, actually. Yeah, that was yeah I, I, I just saw Bordello of Blood again a couple of months ago, so it was just <laughs> on the mind. I love that. I love those kind of campy. It's so great. 
Um, and more or less of a, of course, a, a main character starting in season five of True Blood, uh, where she was considered the first vampire because, of course, okay. she is considered a vampire. That's the, the name Lilith in, in um, Middle Eastern languages sounds like this, Lilita. And Lilita Ba, which sounds you can hear lullaby from that name, means Lilith is coming. That's where lullabies come from, to keep Lilith away. And because, and actually what's also very weird um, is that oh, sometimes cool. it's, it's, it's like a really interesting history because she would come and, and she had threatened Adam when he did that. She was not angry. She was like extremely angry, actually, that he threw her out and wouldn't let her back in. So she told him, she basically cursed him like any good woman would. A woman scorned, man, don't do it. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, he, she just said, I'm going to eat your children you know, throughout the Middle Ages even, and uh, and, and they were all portrayed as, as women for the most part until we get to John Polidori in 1818, uh, I think it came was published in 1819, on that very infamous night where Mary Shelley, Percy Bysshe Shelley, Lord Byron, and John Polidori are all hanging around, you know, drunk and high on opium, you know, right. and, there's, and there's a big storm outside, and they're like, oh, well, you know, we have no electricity anyway, and it's stormy, we can't go outside and get drunk and high, so let's be inside and do it, and let's see who writes the scariest story. So Frankenstein comes out of that night, and so does The Vampire by John Polidori, which is based on Lord Byron. It was the first sort of Edward Cullen figure, at first, like, sort of, um, you know, uh, Anne Rice sort of. Right, you're a trash. Vampire. Yeah, yeah. The you're a trash vampire. You know, and, and there's a great talking about that night that Mary Shelley and, and, uh, Everybody got to, and John Paul, where they all got together. There's a great movie called, I don't know if it's a great movie, but I thought it was cool when I was younger called Gothic. Yeah. That, that portrays that night. Uh, it's like a, it's a British film from the late eighties. And yeah, I, I've seen that film. That's a good, I, I see, look at how, look at all these great, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, and, and now, um, now of course Showtime's Penny Dreadful, which I, I think that, that has basically Frankenstein, Dracula, um, things like, um, Dorian Gray, um, everybody sort of all in this big monster mashup, all living in the same, you know, Dracula, of course, is almost 100 years or 80 years, basically, after Frankenstein and the vampire comes right. out, Bram Stoker's Dracula. So all of a sudden, everybody's living in the same time period, like Victorian England. Um, and Penny Dreadful, of course, is the title comes from the Penny Dreadfuls. Uh, they were these little pamphlets with horror stories, and one of them was called Barney the Vampire. Um, very famous one, um, and they were okay. for a penny, and people would buy them, and so it's a very clever show, um, and, it, and it has like a really, it's like very dark. I mean, paranormal TV shows in the past five years obviously took off, took off in a huge way, where, you know, that's one of the, the biggest questions that um, I get, because I, you know, I do a lot of haunted history stuff when we run a tour in, in Madison, and my sister runs the, the haunted history tour in Milwaukee. And, um, you know, what do you think took, you know, what do you think made those paranormal shows, took them from, you know, something that maybe 20 years ago people would have made fun of or something, and today they are, the, you know, they're one of the hottest things in reality TV. Well, um, it's, it's, it's again connected to 9-11 um, and sort of the idea that, uh, especially when 
especially when in 9-11, the U.S. had, had we'd had terrorist things happen here, but they were from within. Um, so it was, it was, it, it was an exceptional moment in human history in, in the Western world anyway, to have that happen. And so many people, so many Americans died. And I think that, um, the idea that there's life after death and, and this sort of sense of wh- where do people go, you know, exploring it in a way outside of like fictionalizing death through things like vampires and zombies and mummies and Frankensteins and all these dead things that are these creatures that are actually still alive. Um, now we have people that are actually dead. Where do they go? You know, and, and so I think that was part of the kickoff besides the fact that we're at Wilson wrote a letter, I think it was to the New York Times, um, and that's when the first Ghost Hunters show started with him after after he wrote this letter to the New York Times and uh, people of sci-fi um, picked it up and, you know, said, got in touch with him and was like, hey, you know, we want to do a show. <laughs> you sound amazing. So... <laughs> Speaking of reality, um, the the blending of reality and uh, fiction, have you know we've talked about that? You know, you know the ghost hunters. Have you ever had any kind of weird paranormal experiences happen to you? What a great question! Oh my gosh, yes, I have, and it it really it started for me um, with like dreams. My grandmother, who cared for me, um, she was you know basically like a parent to me. Um, and she passed away in 2009 and it started with dreams from her always taking place right before I woke up. And then about two years ago, I met a friend, a very important friend in my life. It turns out, uh, you know, he, he's actually one of my stalkers right now, but that's, you know, kind of how it starts. Yeah, no, he was a fan and he became a friend and, and, and it's, it's a very weird situation, but he was a medium. And in fact, somebody that is a paranormal investigator and we met through mutual friends through my Comic-Con connections, basically. And, um, and, and because he's like a very strong medium, but, um, and, and so when we kind of became friendly, it was very odd. Um, all of a sudden, like, I was able to, I almost wondered if it was psychology at first. I really started questioning it, but then it wasn't just, it wasn't just that. I mean, I could, I couldn't, he could see them, but couldn't hear them. I could hear them. It was the weirdest thing ever. Um, and, and he could see them. So when we were together, it was like almost like enhanced and so many things happened when that, when we were together, so many weird things happened, but I never experienced it the way he did. He experienced it almost like you'd seen the show Constantine. There's a, a person that, that can see ghosts and like they, see them walking across the street like they're real. That's how he described it to me for him. I never had anything like that ever. I, I could hear, I could hear things, you know, that he could see it. And he'd be like, this is what I see. I said, yeah, I can hear her. He'd be like, you can hear it. I'm like, yeah, but I could only hear it when he was there. You know, like it was almost like we were two halves of the same, like, like soul. You know what I mean? Like one half could see, one half yeah. could hear. So that was very interesting, and obviously he. Or some of some of his powers rubbed off on you, like when you guys were together, well, or something am, like that, or you were able I to. I am like that. I pick up. I pick up feelings. I mean, I can. I can. I say. I always thought about it as reading people. I didn't understand that it it, it 
it's maybe something like what you're saying too, possibly. I don't know. I, I just know that what I don't know is a lot. It's incredible, the amount of activity, but I don't see it really. But this was different. The house was totally dark. I'm sitting in my bedroom and I'm doing my phone or whatever. And I, I, I slip on uh, my closet light and I'm going in the closet. I have like a walk-in closet mm-hmm. and I'm checking on something in there. I'm packing a bag or something. And then I, I'm turning to go into the, the bathroom, which is in the master suite. And um, I'm, I kid you not. I mean, I know I was like in a weird state of mind. I was afraid and, and the house was dark. But I really am not afraid of the dark. I walk around in the dark all the time. I don't even care. I just don't care. Sure. Um, and and I really I saw what was like, I don't know how to describe, like almost like a collection of white dots almost, like in, a, in, in like a man size. Um, and it's in the doorway of the bathroom. And because I'm, you know, unaffected, basically, it- I'm... Was this collection? Was this collection like in a in the yeah. shape of a human? Yeah. I mean, did it look like somebody like somebody beaming up or you know beaming down or something? I don't like know that? about beaming. Yeah, yeah. I guess if you were, we were going to go with Star Trek, yes, yes. I would say it was like Because you, you think about how they materialize. Yeah, yeah. It was something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, I didn't think about it at the time, but you're totally right. That's exactly what it was. And because I'm unaffected, which is part of he was very affected. He was terrified of what, what he could see and everything that was happening to him. And I'm like, I don't even care because I grew up, I grew okay. up abused. So I have dissociation like you wouldn't believe. I just don't even, it's like, I'm not, I don't even care. So I see this thing and I just like walk right through it because I got to use the bathroom. <laughs> I'm like, I totally right. appreciate <laughs> what's happening. And as I walk through it, I felt like, I felt I felt the person and I felt like love, you know what I mean? I felt like incredible love. And I was like, Oh my God, I just walked through, uh, like I'm, you know, I'm totally oblivious and I just walked through this thing. And of course it hasn't rematerialized since probably because I, I walked through it. I not. Right. Um, and you're like, oh, I'm out of here. I guess it was probably disrespectful of me, but I had to use the sink. I, mean, <laughs> I had to wash my hands. <laughs> I've got something on my hands in my closet. And I'm like, I, I gotta, I gotta wash this off. So yeah, I mean, that was the first time in my life that I've ever had that particular thing happen. Now I'm sad that I didn't like appreciate mm-hmm. it because I, 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 I think, what could I have done? Could I have communicated? Like, in a, I may, maybe walking to her it was what I was supposed to do. Yeah, I think it's hard to be mindful when you're um, faced with the paranormal. I think you have to have a lot of experience uh, to be able to. Be that mindful when you're faced with something that you completely don't understand. And I and I didn't even like a, it was the lack of appreciation. Like I didn't mean to be disrespectful, but maybe I think maybe I was supposed to walk through so that I could. I think that was maybe ultimately because I was scared. I got this feeling of love and peace, and 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 then I was calm after that. And I and I wonder because I, I thought that was the message it was trying to get across. I, I think so. I'm like, I almost wonder if that was the message, you know, you need to calm down and, you know, think about life a little bit. <laughs> and, yeah. I just got, you just so you're in it, you know, you're so in that survival mode that you just like kind of, so I think that that was actually, anyway, I think that that was the message maybe, but it was cool as hell. I hope it happens again. Yeah. Well, I, ho- I mean that, that feeling, that idea that also that the things in the, the paranormal doesn't always have to be, um, something we have to be scared of either, that a lot of times, you know, paranormal things might be happening for a reason, and the reason might be that you need 
whatever's happening and you know what you need that message or you need that comfort in that moment i think so i mean they're just people really when you think about it it's it's your physical body has to die just like a perennial flower you know it's it's gonna it's it's here and then it goes away and then what happens you know then what happens the body comes back maybe we maybe we come back too we get reincarnated at some point but in the interim where, what happens to us? I mean, we are there. Right. We know it. It's not. We're not just a body. We're not just a, a bag of meat and bones. You know, we're not. We aren't. Um, there's. It's not possible. So. And that's what we try to answer, uh, in the culture we create and, and the things we like and um, and stuff like that. So anyway. I got to say, Dr. Hassel, I could talk to you all day. You are a fascinating person and a fascinating subject. It's, it's nice to be able to have a chat about all of the things that I love. So thank you very much for joining us. We'll definitely do it again. You got to let us know uh, when you're promoting anything like your new book or your new show and tour and stuff like that. So make sure you let us know about that. Anybody who's looking for your writing can find you at um, RebeccaHassel.com slash blog is where your blog is. And we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, Rebecca? I hope you have a great day. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Since today's episode was about the rise of geek culture and the paranormal, we thought we'd do a little song about geek love gone wrong. If you don't know what the term catfish means, it's when somebody meets you on the internet and then completely lies about who they are, and creates a false character for you to meet. And then when you meet them in real life, they're completely different. And it's from a movie called Catfish that was about that kind of thing with internet dating. Anyway, here's today's song, Catfished from Space. from space She said she's an otherworldly monster that would come to Earth to slaughter But she would do her best to help me to survive She talked about her tentacles and three sets of genitals I just thought she was a fan of hentai Didn't care she was pretty I knew she was the girl for me when she said a face She had the perfect place to land She said she was from Alpha Centauri I thought that was a code for a town in misery She used to joke about ruling the human race That's when I got catfished from space When I woke from where I 
right over my town. The army put up quite a fight, but was gone by dawn's early light. That was the day humanity went down. It's not quite happily ever after, cause the planet's a disaster. But I'm the human pet that's closest to her heart. Like Fished from space. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at OthersidePodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. I'm going to have to budget for my Freddie Mercury race costume.